What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Long Game Podcast hosted by Thomas Kopelman and Trayton DeVore. In each episode, you'll hear us break down financial topics that are relevant to the lives of millennials and other young professionals. Our goal is to help bring credible financial information to you in short, bite-sized episodes. Thomas Kopelman and Trayton DeVore are the co-founders and financial planners at All Street Wealth. All opinions expressed by Thomas and Trayton are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of All Street Wealth. This podcast is for educational, informational, and entertainment purposes only. It should not be considered advice. Please consult with your financial advisor, tax, legal, and any other advisors you have before making any decisions regarding your financial plan. All right, what's up and welcome back everyone to another episode of the Long Game Podcast. Today I'm joined by George Archiampong, right? Do I say that one right? I always I always do this at the beginning of every podcast where I get nervous of like saying somebody's name wrong because I just don't want to be offensive at all. And your last name, I mean, I think mine is one that gets butchered all the time. I'm guessing <laughs> yours probably gets butchered a decent amount of the time too. Yeah, but I'm not one of those people who get like super offended. Like if it's if you say it wrong, it's not the end of the world. So I'm the same way. Mine's mine's Copelman, and people say Copelman all the time, and I'm like that. The, there's nothing that could offend me less actually than messing right. up my last name a little bit. But anyways, past the name part, George. Thanks for joining me today, man. And for everybody that doesn't know, fellow financial planner, we met on Twitter. You have really great content there. You're also a top hundred advisor too, right? Sir. Yeah. So you've been making your way in the industry. Um, let's just kind of start off with who you are, what you do. I know you have a financial planning firm. I know you also kind of have like courses and coaching type stuff. So let's go through all that. Yeah. Um, so thanks for the gracious introduction. Uh, as he mentioned, my name is George Ashenpong, and I have been a financial advisor for just north of 11 years, which is interesting Long. to say out loud, <laughs> right? Because it makes me feel a little bit old, but, um, but I have a really, really big passion um, for helping people achieve financial independence. Um, obviously, it's no secret that people of color um, have lagged behind, um, you know, in that process for, you know, a variety of reasons. And so I've particularly had an affinity to just really help people understand um, what it means to truly build generational wealth and achieve financial independence. And so I do that through two main mediums, right? So number one is my registered investment advisory firm, which is Capitalized. And we work directly with clients. A lot of our clients are, um, you know, public figures, uh, consultants, you know, people who have, are experts in their craft and they're experts at what they do. Um, but just like anything else, need a little bit more guidance when it comes to creating a sustainable uh, financial plan on their behalf. And so that's where we do a lot of great work, uh, traditional advisory stuff, some stuff non-traditional, which we'll talk about in the episode. Um, and then through my financial education ecosystem, Melanin Money, that's where we're able to really help people at scale, right? So obviously we have a podcast as well that airs every Wednesday, um, but we also have a financial education platform where people can tune into on-demand classes. We also have the archives, obviously, of all those past workshops. They get access to a real-time money coach where they can ask their questions in real time. Um, and of course, it's a community of other aspiring first-generation millionaires. So they get a chance to find their potential future co-investor or business partner or accountability partner um, all within the community. And so my whole thought process is instead of spending, you know, however much time you spend on social media, especially if you don't use it to make money, it's one thing if you use social media to make money, but if you don't, and you're just scrolling, um, our community might be a better fit to at least allocate some of that time towards. Definitely. And so is it more community-based or is it more course-based, do you find? Like what do people yeah. use it mostly for? Yeah, I would say 
I would say community based, right? Okay. I feel like in the beginning, like people wanted to, you know, hop in and naturally take advantage of the courses and the past recordings from like the live classes, which they still do. But I feel like people are definitely finding value in connecting with other people who are on the same journey and, you know, just trying to find that accountability partner and, you know, just stay, you know, stay locked in on the path. Do you find a lot of people in that become clients of the RAA over time? Uh, it's a, I would say that it's a small percentage, probably like 10%, maybe. Um, just because, yeah, yeah, it's not, it's not too bad, but, but just because it's like my ideal firm avatar is, is a, is a pretty big gap between that and people that we're trying to serve in the community. But my whole thing was I wanted everybody to at least have access to quality financial education and information. Right. Um, and so we're able to do that uh, through our financial social network. Yeah, I love that. And and we definitely think similarly because I have my RAA. I realize that like with our fees, we can't work with everybody by any means, but I have this huge passion for helping all of the rest of those people. And like one avenue I've had is I have like a $1,500 like afternoon session, which yeah. is still not super cheap. Like I get that that's still a barrier, but I think a good amount of people can afford to do that for the the trajectory and how that would change things for them in the future. But we also want to hit like a smaller market of people who can maybe only pay $199 or college graduates. And that's something that we're launching in September and building out too. And, and I love that because I think so many financial planners, like they're really exclusive. Like I only add value for the people that I work with in my RIA, which like you and I both don't, we've created a ton of content. We realize that yes, that does help our business, but more than that, we help more people than it actually brings into our business. But then there are the people who are like, yeah, we, we can consume your content, whatever, but packaging it all together. And like, what are each piece that I need to learn? I think is something that is missing. And there's just not enough courses from true financial advisors. Like every course you come around is like, from somebody who paid off a hundred thousand of debt or somebody who let's say has like a real estate business or something. And those are great things, but like, right. just cause somebody figured out how to pay off a hundred thousand dollars of debt does not mean they know anything else about finances other than like, let me put my head down and aggressively pay off debt, which to be honest, isn't that even that hard of a thing to learn. That's like the yeah. easiest piece. hundred percent. And you hit the nail on the head. And I'm glad you asked like what the, what the difference is or what do people gravitate towards? Because I feel like the way I like to articulate it is the community component is like a college campus, right? It's like, even if you're not enrolled in a particular major and you're on campus and you're, you might meet somebody in the cafeteria at a library, like you're going to learn something, right? Just through sheer osmosis of being in the room, right? And I feel like the courses give you a more structured path uh, to like a specific objective that you're trying to achieve. And so there, there's definitely a use case for both. I think the courses by themselves are good, but the challenge is like, okay, well, what if I need additional context or what if I need some ongoing accountability? Because a lot of courses that get open don't get executed on, right? And now granted, it's not our fault, but at the same token, if I can increase the likelihood that someone gets more value from my course by having access to a community component, um, I think that that's helpful. And it's a way to keep them there longer too, right? I mean, the course ends at some point and then it's kind of like, well, what do we do from here? You can keep adding to the course as you figure out like who's actually in the audience, like more business owners. And then you can start talking about like tax structure and entity structure and, you know, buy sell agreements and, and different levels of things versus you start to realize who's coming in or people with equity compensation or, you know, just regular W-2 people. And they need to learn about maximizing company benefits or, you know, ESPP plans, or, I mean, it gives you time to figure out and craft it too, to the people that naturally you push into your program. 
Yeah. And one of the things that we also did that's helpful that I actually think over time will convert more people potentially to clients is once they on board to our educational program, they fill out what we call like a wealth health assessment. Right. And it really just covers like what I would consider the baseline things that everybody should address um, or mostly everybody should address when they're trying to complete a true financial plan. Um, and then one of the questions that's not related to the score um, but we're also asking their income, right? So then, because what I've noticed, and you probably will notice too, is when you create a lot of content through, um, you know, so Twitter or social media, whatever the case may be, people are going to start to establish trust with you. And so you might have somebody who's a qualified client and just so happens to come across your course, but they need to be, they should probably be a client, right? But when you're able to kind of cross-reference that, like they bought the course and then we had them complete this survey, it's like, oh, well, based upon what I'm seeing, you probably should hop on the phone with somebody at our firm, um, so it makes it easier to ascend and identify people who may have slipped the cracks just because they love everything you do, right? And it's like, oh, yeah, you put out a course, I got to grab it, not realizing that they're eligible to be a client. Hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Super cool, man. Um, all right, let's 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 transition, switch gears here. So topic that we're going to talk about today that I think you're super passionate about is how to reach financial independence faster. And I know this is something that like, Maybe that's like a main thing that you work on with your clients. And I've had some podcasts talking about fire and the things I don't like about it. Just, it is not that I don't like fire. It's just that what I see in social media is extreme frugality to reach fire. And like, I've worked with clients who significant others have passed away or they've had brothers or siblings or even kids. And like, I just don't like the idea of like, let's give up everything today to retire as fast as we can to nothing. I think that there are better paths, but I will say for me, like, I am, you know, I save, I invest about 50% of my income right now with the goal of that. Like, I just don't want to have to worry about money later. I know I will continue to work, but right. to me, the biggest benefit of fire or just reaching financial independence is money. Isn't the decision that you make in working more pursuing things that you don't want. Like, you know, you could have your spouse stay at home because you don't really have to worry about money. You know, you can help your kids in different ways. That That's the reason why I think financial independence is really beneficial, mm -hmm. not the get me out of work so I can do nothing the rest of my life. Cause research shows people die pretty quick once you reach retirement and you don't really have anything that you care about anymore. Yeah, no, hundred, hundred percent. Like we're, we're so aligned. I'm, I'm the same way. Like nothing about the, the fire movement in the way that a lot of people think about it in terms of, like you said, extreme frugality living in an RV, like yeah, I'm not a fan of, of any of that, right? Yeah. I'm, I'm just of the mindset, how can we put ourselves in a position to your point to where working is optional, right? Like we, we've been conditioned to think that what we do professionally, right? Like we have to, it has to be tied to how we are able to sustain our lifestyle, right? And so I just want people to be able to shift that paradigm because there might be some things that you are truly passionate about and could you make a lot of money from doing it? Probably so. But at the same token, it wouldn't it be nice to be in a position where that was optional? You could truly just do it because you love it and not because you're trying to find another way to monetize it, right? Like I like to play golf. And so it's like, just because I like to play golf, I don't want to have to figure out a way to monetize playing golf. And so I think financial independence to me is more about that. It's more about options. It's more about being able to do what you love, what fulfills you, not under the guise of I have to do this to pay my bills. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's like a, it's a great goal. And it's something that I think a lot of people don't actually understand is achievable. Like it, 
I, I don't know the exact numbers. We'd have to pull up a chart, but it, there, there's a way to look at it of like 50% savings rate. You can retire. And I think it's like 12 to 14 years and it's like 40%. And then you go to 30 and you go to 20, but in all reality, it's like, if you invest a good amount of your income, you can reach financial independence a lot quicker than you think. But that's also being mindful of not inflating your lifestyle really quickly over that time. That's, that's a huge, that's a huge driver, right? It's like, because while I personally believe that income is probably single-handedly the greatest lever, right, to being able to accelerate your financial independence timeline, if you don't, if you're not a good steward over those resources, it doesn't matter. We've seen that time and time again with people who have made more money, enough money for three lifetimes, right? And it's squandered because there's no money management system. And so, like, it, it, it's all kind of this symbiotic relationship of, like you say, increasing your savings rate. But the only way you can increase your savings rate is if you are a good steward over your finances and not spending all your money as soon as it comes in. Um, so it's all it's all part of, you know, a cohesive approach that you have to take if you want to achieve financial independence the right way. Yeah. You got, you had two sides of it, right? We can either decrease our expenses, we can e increase our income. Most of money Twitter talks about decreasing expenses, cutting that down, increasing your savings rate. But to be honest, like growing your income is is most times easier. I think maybe for the people that I work with, there is a lot of room to cut expenses. Like I, I have a lot of people who come in to work with me that are spending above twenty five thousand dollars a month. Okay, great. You have a $13,000 a month apartment. You could probably cut that down to eight and, and that'll free up a lot. But for the average person, there's only a limit to what you can cut, but there's a lot of room to grow. So I think people view these lower income people and say like cut expenses. But when you're lower income, you have a really, you have a way easier way to increase that income through any technical skill. I mean, I, I have a client where she helps coach people to go through and get government jobs. The average person goes from like 35 to 40,000 to a hundred thousand after it. Like that is a pretty impactful change. There's all these coding programs. There is you know, coaching programs. There's all these ways to invest in yourself and grow your income. And I don't think people talk about that piece as much because, you know, I look at my clients. So let's say, you know, you make $200,000 a year, you spend $150,000 in expenses. You already have your house. You already have kids. They're not going to go to private school. You're already saving for those things. You have the ability right here that as your income grows to kind of freeze these expenses. Obviously, maybe with inflation, they go up a little bit, but I think people fail to realize that they just think income goes up, I increase my expenses. Income goes up, I increase my expenses. But there's this period of time where you actually don't need to do that. You have kind of all of your needs. You kind of have all of your wants. Everything mm -hmm. else doesn't have that much of a marginal benefit where right. you can quickly increase that savings rate over time. And I find that the best place to do that is just had kids or, you know, kids are getting a little bit older and I already have my house. But when you're, you know, moving from apartment to house, that is, you know, that's a period of time where, you know, it's a lot harder. Yeah, no, hundred percent, hundred percent. Like one is a finite exercise, right? Like there's only so low you can go, right? And at the end of the day, like, I guess, yeah, you could have little to no expenses, but what is the quality of your life at that point, right? And then one is an infinite exercise, right? It's like, okay, well, if I just focus on, uh, acquiring high income skill sets and, and making more money, it could solve a lot of my problems. And let's just take a very simple example. If a person makes $50,000 a year, which I think is what they say the average American makes, and you are, are able to save 10% 10, 10 of your income, okay, cool. You're able to save you know $5,000 a year. If you doubled your income to $100,000 and doubled your savings rate, you now are able to save $20,000 a year 
right? Just by ma making more money. And that's a much faster and much easier path versus like, okay, well, how can I try to scrutinize every little line item and then skipping the coffee, the one little joy of your day, thinking that that's going to, you know, change your life, right? Yeah. So, you know, tomato, tomato, but that's always been my thought process. Well, I think a lot of people in this like lower income range think that the way for them to speed up financial independence is actually to get really involved in trading and, and increase these investment returns. But again, that example you just said, you went from 5,000 investing to 20,000. So that's four times. Like the amount of returns that you would need, like let's say you have a 100% return on that 5,000, you have $10,000. You have a 10% return on that $20,000, you know, obviously not, that's the average over a long period of time. That's $2,000. Like that is a very big difference, 10% versus a hundred percent, but you still now have 22,000 versus 10,000. And then you compound this over time. And I think that it's a dangerous game to think that trading or increasing your investment returns is going to be what leads to that long-term result that you want. When in reality, that time you spent there, you could actually use to grow some skill set or invest back in yourself to increase your income, which is going to help you way more. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, but you know, it's like, I think what happens, especially at the lower income tier is, or really, I mean, maybe not just the lower income tier, because we all we all see people who also make six figures or live and check the check as well. But like people are chasing a shiny ball to absolve themselves from the responsibility of doing the work, right? Uh, I hired this coach one time and he said, uh, it takes what it takes, nothing more, nothing less. And he was using the example of like fitness. He's like, if you see somebody in the gym, and they're doing backflips off of a box jump into burpees. He's like, it does not take that to be financially fit, right? You, you don't have to do that, right? But at the same token, you can't think that you can chase this master, crazy, super challenging workout and simply not eat healthy, right? Like it, it, it's all part of it. And so sometimes people think, well, I can be a terrible student of my finances or I can undo 10 years of bad financial behaviors by hopefully chasing a meme stock that will wipe out all my debt. And that's just not going to happen, right? Like it doesn't, you have to do the work. You have to make a decision, a conscious decision that you're on a new path. You're on a new journey. You're committed to improving yourself, right? Because money is just the amplifier. So if you get more money and you still have the same habits, again, we've seen what that looks like. Like, I think I tweeted something the other day and I basically was saying, you don't typically hear about people going bankrupt who have make $50,000 a year. You hear about people going bankrupt who had a lot of money and were terrible stewards over it, right? The people who only make 50 or $40,000 a year, right? Worst case scenario, maybe you're moving in with moms or a family member, but you're not going bankrupt. You didn't really have enough clay to mold to even mess it up, quite frankly, right? But if you get more money and you still have the same habits, it's actually going to exacerbate the problem uh, even worse. And so you just, it takes what it takes. You can't circumvent the process of what it means to be fundamentally financially sound. Yeah. I always talk about like habits are the most important thing. I mean, I always push everybody like graduate college, build the habit, right? Build the habit of automated savings, build the habit of automated investing, build the habit of like not spending more than you make. Because what I found is, you know, I have clients who come into me that are making $500,000 a year with credit card debt. I think what people start to re what I realize by that is it actually does not matter how much money you have. You are going to spend whatever money that you have if that is the habit that you've built. The hard part is a lot of people don't realize it until they're in like, you know, being slapped in the face with like, 
I'm going to have no place to live where are we going to be foreclosed on or, you know, they're going to take us out of our apartment before that they can actually learn because they've always figured it out before. And then I guess going back to the thing that you talked about on the meme stocks too, is you're so right. Like I, I talk about that all the time too. The problem is, is that everybody has the story of the person that it did work for, right? Like they have the friend who got lucky on the, you know, GameStop. They have the friend who bet on, you know, whatever cryptocurrency that blew up. And so they think that like, because I know somebody that it worked for, it is doable for me without right. understanding that like, that's the one in the million luck. And yeah you're not probably going to win the lottery when you already know somebody else who probably won the lottery. Your odds are even lower. Right. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just an interesting phenomenon, right? It's just like, at the end of the day, people value instant gratification and the, the thought of just like committing to a process and having to actually do the work uh, is something that people would try to avoid if they could, right? And so, you know, I know we talked about saying that on this episode, we want to talk about how you can achieve financial independence faster, but at the same token, we, I don't want to, I don't want to say that without giving that context that you, you're not going to get there by chasing shiny balls, right? And it's just not going to happen. Right. But if you are able to increase your income, right, substantially, and you've established great habits from a money management standpoint, that will single-handedly be one of the most important things you can do to achieve financial independence faster. Yeah. Uh, the second let's go into it. Yeah, yeah. let's keep, keep going into it. I love these. The second thing I would say is understanding the difference between accumulation and cash flow, right? And so when we think about retirement, at least, you know, when I used to think about retirement, right, I always associated retirement with, with age, right? It's like, oh, you have the retirement party at 65, right? It never really dawned on me until I got in the profession that it really has nothing to do with age and it has everything to do with your assets, right? It's like, okay, well, if I have, because I increased my income earning potential and my savings rate, and I was able to accelerate that journey, I don't have to wait till 65. It could happen at 45 if I wanted it to, right? But then I dug even deeper and I was like, okay, well, it's not even about the, the $1.5 million or whatever your fire number is. It's about the cash flow that you need uh, to cover your lifestyle, right? It just so happens that the industry standard formula is that if you have 25 times your earnings, right, you can safely withdraw that percentage from your portfolio with the the idea of, you know, not running out of money, right, or it being highly improbable. But again, if we drill down to the real meat and potatoes of it, it's you need that cash flow number. So whether it's fifty thousand a year or sixty thousand dollars a year, now you know. Okay, cool. That's what I actually need. And so even though I love the stock market, all my clients are invested in it, I'm invested in it. What I realize is the stock market is a phenomenal tool for hedging against inflation, right? Um, it's the, one of the most passive ways to build wealth, but it's not the most efficient when it comes to um, producing cash flow, right? Not saying that it can't, but it's not the most efficient um, from, from a cash flow standpoint. And so when I had that paradigm shift, it's like if my clients are open to a investment strategy where not only are we still investing in the stock market, but we're also identifying other cash flow producing assets that also can definitely get you to your journey faster as well, right? Of course, every client is not going to have the appetite for real estate or every client might not have the appetite for uh, private equity or whatever these other options might be. But for those that do and they have the risk profile, it can be a great way to really build out this well-rounded um, retirement strategy where, okay, now I don't have to have $1.5 million tucked away 
in a portfolio because I have these other vehicles that produce cash flow that get me to my number a little more efficiently. Yeah, I think there's a bunch of good options in there. It's funny, I actually have clients that I just started to work with that they are using real estate to pay for their kids' college. So they bought a property for each of their kids when they were born, put a 15-year mortgage on it, set it up where it'll be paid off by the time the kids go to college, take yeah. all that cash flow to cash flow their college. Like That is a, a pretty good way to do it. Again, one is you got to find the right real estate. It has to be a good investment option. Like You can't just like pick any single one hope it's rented out, hope no big expenses happen and it work. <clears throat> um, but it is a strategy that can work pretty well. I think, you know, the FI couple or whatever on Twitter, they talk about this a lot too, is you need less value in real estate to have a little bit higher of the cash flow. But again, this also has to align with the right person. Like I have a lot of people who retirement, they're going to be so above the amount of dollars that they need, where the cash flow from the real estate would actually be a drag on them because of the RMDs they have, social security, et cetera. But that would maybe not be the best investment. Then I have other people who like, that would be the best investment. They could be financially independent at 40 to 45, well before they have to worry about any of those other things happening. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And it's just, and, but the, the good thing is you now know, and you have options, right? It's not this idea that I have to wait until 65 and tuck my money away in retirement. And that's that's how long it's going to take me, right? You have options once you understand what makes the most sense for you. And if someone feels like they're behind on their journey, right? Maybe, you know, they they got their first big, big boy or big girl job a little bit later and they feel like they're playing catch up, you know, that can be a little bit more refreshing to hear because like, okay, man, there is a way for me to still get to that target in a reasonable time frame, even though you know, I wasn't able to make those contributions earlier on in my career. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, what else? What else on the yeah. list? Get there quicker. Yeah, so this one is, um, actually, I heard Josh Brown mention, mention it. it's something I've been advocating for for the past couple of years. Um, but I heard Josh Brown mention it on the compound maybe a week or two ago um, in, ter in, in terms of just like how the game, how the wealthy really play the game, right? And I have a kind of a different spin on it, but I'll still give the concept that he shared. So, We've all probably heard the the buy, borrow, die strategy, yeah. right? Where, you know, you buy assets, you let them appreciate it, appreciate you borrow against them. And then of course, when you die, you probably have a life insurance policy in place to cover the outstanding loan um, against the assets that you have, right? And then pass it down to your, your heirs, rinse and repeat, right? So that is true. And that is a great strategy. And it also will probably, it will mitigate a lot of taxes following that strategy. But even bigger than that, what I realized is if you are still in that wealth building accumulation phase and you do invest in the stock market, right? It's like, okay, well now, instead of, if I identify a real estate investment opportunity, instead of selling some of my shares to go buy that property or having to stack additional money in the bank account to go, to go finance that down payment, now what you can do is once you've done the math, obviously, that it makes sense, you can do something called interest rate arbitrage, right? Where you can borrow against the value of your assets so they can continue to compound uninterrupted. Then you can take that money and then go maybe put that down payment or buy that real estate property that is cash flowing as well. And because you're not at a place where you need the income yet, you can reinvest that cash flow back into your portfolio. And so now you've essentially gotten three uses out of your money, right? With one move, right? You put it in your portfolio, You because you had that collateral, you can borrow against it. Now you can go buy a cash flow producing asset. Then you can take the cash flow that the asset produces and 
put some of it back into the portfolio, right? And so that was another hack that I realized that really could help accelerate people's timeline because now they're able to leverage their assets to acquire more assets, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's that's another thing that I, I advocate for as well. It's funny. This is like the uh, big value out of permanent life insurance people talk about, but they fail to talk about the fact that you can do it elsewhere. A um, couple of things to hit on there too. I, I do like that strategy and I do think it works. I think that we have to talk about when it works. So I think when that works is you have a lot of taxable assets. So people have to build it up there. That's really the best place to do it. I mean, you could technically from your 401k, but I think that's a little bit bigger of a risk, especially if like, well, what if I switch from my job, right? Like now I have all this debt there that that becomes a problem. And then the other side is you need to make sure that you're invested properly in your taxable account. I had a person who came in to project based and they had a huge line of credit against their brokerage account, which was all in like two stocks. And let me tell you how those two stocks did over the last two years terribly. They were down about 90 some percent and he was margin call after margin call after margin call, throwing that money in and then realized, okay, great. Like to pay this off over 10 years, right? Borrowed, let's say you borrow 300,000. I mean, that's, you're probably paying $40,000 a year to pay that off. But again, it's way better when you go use it on something that's going to bring in cash flow versus a lot of people borrow to buy, right? Yeah. So if you borrow against this, um, you know, take out the equity against the real estate and then, or against your investments. And you say, I'm going to go do a housing project or I'm going to go, you know, something for me. That can be a really risky move to make because you don't really have the cash flow coming in to back pay it. So to me, I'm like, well, if you can't afford to do X, Y, and Z because you couldn't save there, how are we going to go back and pay off this really high loan? We don't want to be on an interest only loan for a really long time, potentially during recession. But I do agree. The other option that people have is borrow against other real estate. So that's a pretty common thing is, hey, maybe I take, you know, cash out refi. Obviously that's a pretty bad option right now with interest rates compared to where people that were, but as interest rates go down, that's an option. Then you have home equity lines of credit. You just, I mean, there's all of these other options too from there where you could say, you know, let me pull out some from here, use it to put as a down payment on this property, cash flow, we go back to pay it off and keep building it up, especially when people aren't necessarily worried about like cash flow comes back to me to live my lifestyle. I'm trying to use all this real estate to grow our net worth for future cash flows that we might need. 100%. Yeah, it, it definitely has to make sense. It has to be the right time for the right person, um, which is why like I wanted to get that caveat to your point. Like People will borrow against it and then go buy something. But it's like, if you don't have that cash flow coming back in, or if you couldn't substantiate that on your own and you're just using this as a smart leverage play, then that's where it could get, it could get tricky really, really fast. So you definitely want to do the numbers. You definitely want to make sure that it makes sense for you and the time is right. And if you've exhausted the right options, because to your point, um, the life insurance crowd, they failed to mention that this is a concept, right? Like, and this can be done in a lot of other ways, right? Whether it's leveraging your portfolio, leveraging your real estate, right? It can be done in other ways and just making sure you understand which path is the right way for you. Yeah, and I would say this is a more complex route, which can work. Like I, I've tweeted about this before and I've had other financial advisors be like, if this is the way to build wealth, I don't want to build wealth then, which I think that sometimes people mix up that like, just because there's some complexity doesn't mean that's a bad thing, right? Like that's an efficient thing. When we have people who are in 37% tax bracket, then they live in California, like 
it might not always make sense to be selling, like especially in that ultra high net worth space, they're almost never selling. I mean, real estate is 31 exchanging, you know, investments are borrowing against. So it's, it's pretty much a strategy that they use. And then you have the die step up in cost basis. And, you know, obviously that can be really powerful too. Yeah. I mean, it, it, there's no, there's no absolute, there's, there are very few uh, absolute truths, right? I think in, in personal finance, it's spending less than you make probably that that's the one we got, all have to agree on. Right. And invest um, somehow you have to invest it, I guess. Yeah. I mean, the only time is maybe even if you sold a business and you have a ton of money, you invested in that business. Like there's really no way to get there unless somehow you invest and grow your money. hundred percent. Right. So we can agree on that. that that's, that's the universal truth. But beyond that, like different strategies are going to make sense for different people. You know, like I might not agree with, every single take of another financial professional, but it's not because they're wrong. That might just work for the people that they serve and vice versa, right? And so I think that's important. And I think that's how we actually originally connected, right? There was another financial professional that hopped in your thread and pulled off on the side of the road because he was so passionate <laughs> about getting his thoughts off, right? And it's like, we don't have to agree on everything. Yeah. Right? Like it can it can all work for the right in the right scenario. Well, not all of it, but a lot of these strategies can work in the right scenarios for the right person, right? And I think it's just important to understand what your objective is, what you're trying to achieve, and then you can determine if it's a good fit, right? So that's that's something that I think every prospective person who is seeking out a financial professional uh, just should consider, right? It's like when I hear them talk, when I read their tweets, when I watch their videos, does it resonate with me, right? If it resonates with you, then there's a good chance that it could make sense for your strategy. If they're saying something that does sound maybe overly complex um, in your mind, right? Or just doesn't seem like it aligns with what you're trying to achieve, then maybe they're not the best fit for you. It doesn't mean they're wrong either, right? And it's just important to understand that because there are more than, there's more than one way to skin a cat when it comes to building wealth, for sure. Yeah, and I think that there are there are really good advisors who own like one you know one main thing. Like there are advisors who say I specialize in helping founders that are planning to sell you know utilize QSBS and like that's their main tool and they know it in and out and it's really good. But there's also really good advisors who say I help you, right? Like to me, I feel like what I do is I help you build wealth. I help you plan for your future. Whether you want to use real estate in your portfolio, we'll talk about it and we'll see if it makes sense. If you absolutely don't want to and you want to focus on your business, that'll make sense. If you want to focus on, you know, maximizing your equity compensation, investing and, in, you know, diversifying in the stock market, that'll make sense, right? Like we have all these different options that we can talk about. And I feel like unless you're that specialty one that I talked first talked about, it's like, here's all of your options you have. And here's actually why some of these won't make sense. You hate real estate. You don't want to manage it yourself. Right. It, it would add a lot of stress for you. Okay, maybe that's not the option. Hey, you probably don't want to borrow against your investments because you are risk averse and you already are anti-debt. anti, anti -debt. Like that would make your life worse. You know, you can just go down all these things and be like, this doesn't apply to you. This does apply to you. What do you want to use? What do you not want to use? And to us, our, our job really is just to help them, not really push them down one route, even though it might be more optimal if it doesn't make them feel good about it. Yeah, it's like it's like, you know, when when it comes to paying off debt, right? Like obviously we know there's always going to be uh, a mathematical option that makes the most sense on paper, but if the thought of debt or having debt in any in any capacity really weighs on your client or weighs on you to give you anxiety, it's like, okay, well cool. Well, look, this might not make sense on paper to aggressively pay this off, but if it will give you the peace of mind that you need to live your best life, then that's the route that we'll choose. Right? And I think that's what people have to understand. Like everything 
doesn't have to make perfect sense on paper um, as long as it makes perfect sense for your overall strategy and who you are as a person. Because at the end of the day, the money is just a tool, right? And the tool is designed to help you live your best life. If you aren't going to feel like you're living your best life by choosing a particular strategy just because it makes the most sense on paper, then we are defeating the entire purpose. 100%. Love it. All right. Any last ones to add here? Uh, so we talked about income. I mean, obviously, you know, where it makes sense to moderate expenses, increasing your savings rate. I think I think those I think those are the main ones. Increasing your high income skill set, right? So you so that you can increase your savings rate. Um, of course, like we said, you have to invest early and often, um, and you can do more of that if you have a high income skill set. Um, and in certain scenarios where it makes sense, leveraging your assets uh, to acquire uh, more assets, right? So that you can accelerate your journey without having to sell any of your investments. And so that's, yeah. that's kind of the core, I would say. I think those are super good. I think one, just to build on to like the income piece is that like, don't match your expenses with your income. Like I, I think a really powerful exercise is think about like, to me, what is, what is a good life look like for me? Not in the way that like you hand me a hundred million dollars, what would I go do? That's different. Like think about, Hey, if you worked, you know, if you had to work 40 hours a week, you had a job you loved, um, you know, how would you spend your money? Okay. You know, here's the house I would have, you know, here's probably the cars that we would have, you know, here's what we would do on vacations, those type of things. What would that cost to live? Right. Okay. Well, you know what you want. Like we don't have to go to that extravagant lifestyle. What is that going to take? Now, as your income increases, you don't necessarily have to inflate beyond that just because you have more income. Cause when you don't, you will reach financial independence significantly faster by just understanding what that enough piece is to you and what matters to you. Cause I, I feel like what I find with my high income people is we fall into the love of just buying things because we have the income. And then all of a sudden we're like decreasing our savings rate actually when income goes up because we get locked into too nice of cars, too nice of houses, too nice of private schools, too nice of vacations. And all of a sudden, you know, even though you're making $500,000 a year, you're only investing like $50,000. And it takes a lot of investing to get to the point where you can keep that lifestyle down the line. Right. A whole lot, right? And, that, and that's just what you got to ask yourself, right? And I think there's a lot of people who, to your point, they've never gotten laid off. They've always been able to get raises or promotions or their transitions have been smooth. And a lot of people just really haven't wrapped their head around the fact that, okay, I'm climbing this mountain, I'm ascending this mountain, but at some point I have to descend the mountain, right? Because retirement, because people most, mostly think about it in terms of age, it's, it does, it's not creating a present consequence for them. So they're not putting a lot of focus on it. And so I think, you know, our job as financial professionals is to bring that future state right into the present by saying, okay, well, like you said, what does that ideal life look like, right? How much do you need to make that work? Well, here's why we have to start working towards that now, because this is what it's going to take to achieve that. I think there's a really big disconnect on for people in terms of what it takes to be financially independent. And I'm not saying that it's like you said, it's not doable. It's very attainable, or right? I think it's actually more attainable once you have the clarity and understanding on what that target is, right? But I think there still is a big disconnect on the process and what's required to achieve it. And once people have that clarity, they can make better decisions, right? But if not, what happens is you keep increasing your current lifestyle and robbing from the potential of the future one where now you don't have to rely on work in order to fund it, right? And yeah. it's, like, it's like the light bulb that goes off for people when I talk to them. They're like, 
I'm like, do you do realize the only way to not work is you have to have assets that are producing the cash flow that you need to take care of your lifestyle. That's literally the only way, right? Unless you inherit a bunch of money. And if that's not, if that's not on your bingo card, then you might want to start this process of building wealth. Yeah. And I think you hit on a really interesting point there too, that like people need to understand that you are like, your life can change. Things cannot work out. I feel like everybody views this like, oh, we see it happen to other people, but it's never going to happen to us. Like I have worked with a lot of people who went from periods of time where they had like really low income to really high income to loss of income. And not because like disability or whatever, but a lot of times it's like a business or sales where things went really well. And all of a sudden now things are lower here and we locked ourselves into the lifestyle that are here. And now we don't really know what to do. And I think that this is why you have to plan with your finances so well, is that those are going to happen to everybody in different periods of time of your life. Don't spend everything that you have. And because when you get to that point, you're going to be stuck when you didn't build your finances in a great way. Yeah. One of the things that I learned when I first got in my career as a financial services professional was this ideology of keeping your, your highs low and your lows high. Right. And this is really true for the entrepreneur clients. It's like, you might have these periods where you're making outsized amounts of income, right? But if you predetermined that like, hey, whether my business earns this or not, like this is what my lifestyle is based on. When you have those ebbs and flows, you'll be able to have that level of regularity because it's like you didn't, just because your business had this big jump in income, you didn't jump with it, right? Like you kept things very stabilized. And so that when you had those lows, it, you didn't really feel it, right? Because uh, you were able to, you know, be prudent with your finances. And I, and, and I know it's hard for a lot of people. I mean, the advertising industry does a really good job of trying to convince you to buy things that you don't need, but you have to remind yourself at the end, end of the day, on the first of the month, when your bills are due, nobody's sending you any money, right? And so it's like, let me make sure that the lifestyle that I'm building and maintaining is one that I actually care about and wasn't influenced by some societal standards based upon how much money I made. Because yeah. if not, you'll just be someone who has a lot of things, um, but you're not able to really feel liberated or free because of the lifestyle that you've accumulated that you now have to keep up. Yeah. Oh, I love that. That is a great way to end. George, thanks for joining me today, man. Let everybody know best places to uh, follow you. Yeah, I'm actually getting, I, I'm, normally I would say Instagram is my cup of tea. I'm, I'm always really content over there, right? Um I'm getting back in the swing of things on Twitter. Uh, I had kind of abandoned Twitter for a little while, uh, but now now I'm back and I'm, I was like, well, why, why did I ever leave? So you can also find me on Twitter as well. I'll make sure that I get my handles over um, to you so that you can share it with your listeners. But yeah, Instagram, Twitter, um, great places to find me. I haven't really figured out the TikTok thing yet. I do have a profile, but not really over there much. Um, those are the easiest place easiest places to connect with me for sure. Okay, perfect. Well, thanks for coming, man. And everybody, thanks for listening. Please rate, subscribe, and we will see you back next week.